I'm Audrey Bellis. And I'm Yvette Montoya. And you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon and Español. We tell stories about femme leaders and activists of color, making our world a better place. Let's get started. We are here today with Jaya Thomas, who is a sports and entertainment attorney. She is a professor. She is currently an adjunct professor at UCLA, among many other things. Holla, broom pride. Yes, yes. Sorry, USC. We know we have a great affiliation with you. We still love you. Yeah. I can't. We do. I legally cannot. <laughs> I can't. I, I simply cannot. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening, if you uh, you've probably heard us say that on other podcasts, that is Yvette's like best quotable phrase ever. And you know what? I stole that from somebody, and he heard me say it, and he was like, "Why are you going to always drop all my shit?" And I was like, <laughs> "You know what? I'm making it my own." Yes, because you have brought your own flavor to it. I do it exactly the way he does it. <laughs> <laughs> I stole it, no shame. Oh, just my like, <laughs> gato. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have stolen from you. Yeah, we share. We share. Oh, sharing is caring. <laughs> you know what else is caring? What? I don't know. I was just saying that because it rhymed. That's all I had. <laughs> But well, we're off to a great start. <laughs> we are off to a great start. We've got Jaya here, and she is a total badass. And I was so excited when we got connected with her. And Yvette, didn't you want to be a professor at one point? I did. I did want to be a professor until I realized how polarized and white and heteronormative that space was. And it's really, really competitive and really hard to be in. And I don't know. Halfway through grad school, I was like, you know what? I'm good. That was sad, Gato. Your voice got so sad. No, because I I really wanted to do it. Like, I was really excited about doing research. But, like, the more that I read about POC in academia, the more I'm like, you know what? I'm glad that I kind of got out. I don't need that fight. I got enough (laughs) with my everyday life. Yeah, we've got a lot of fight in us. People always say that I should have been an attorney because I really love to argue with people. Like, I should have been a litigator. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to be right, and I will be right. And I have an exceptionally good memory. So when people try to, like, you know, second-guess me or try to confuse me and be like, no, that didn't happen. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, let me tell you because I can literally replay scenarios in my head, and I will catch you on my cross. Not today, (laughs) Satan. Not today, Satan. Oh, but... Jaya, we are pumped to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So as mentioned, my name is Jaya Thomas. I am a sports and entertainment lawyer. I've been practicing for about 11 years now. Originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Moved to Los Angeles from New York City. Um, I've been in LA for about three and a half years now. And um, aside from practicing law, I also teach at UCLA and I'm also dipping my toes into producing right now. So last year I helped co-produce my first film, and now I'm working on some television projects with Let my Let me interrupt you because your film partner. was recognized at South by Southwest, which yes. is a big deal. What film was it? It's called Nine Rides. What's it about? It's actually about an Uber driver who goes mm-hmm. on nine rides, takes nine rides on New Year's Eve, and each ride helps him determine whether or not he wants to stay engaged to his fiance or break things off. Oh, my goodness. Can I tell you that I've had life-changing Uber rides? In fact, this morning, (laughs) my Uber ride this morning was life-changing. I don't talk to my Uber drivers. I do. (laughs) I went out on a date with a guy's, with my Uber driver's son. Oh, interesting. 
Well, he was Middle Eastern. And I was sitting in the back seat, and he looks in the rearview mirror and he goes, Are you Persian? And I go, No. And he <laughs> goes, Are you sure? For, you know, because your eyebrows are so big, whatever. I can't even do the Persian. accent now. Persian. Persian. Meow, like the cat. And so we're sitting in the car and he goes, he's asking me a lot of questions. What do you do? He's like, oh, very hardworking. He goes, did you, where did you go to school? When did you graduate? And it goes on and on. And finally he goes, you should meet my son. You look like you're a busy woman. My son is an ER doctor and he's very busy. How about I show you his Instagram? You show me yours. And if you like each other, you meet. And I go, whatever. This guy seemed harmless. He was telling me how he was retired and his wife's retired and better for him to go to work every day and still do something like, you know, driving Uber so that his wife doesn't nag him or whatever. And like six hours later, I get a DM from this very good looking guy who's like, um, my dad said you were in his Uber today. Oh, wow. (laughs) I would love to meet you. And we had coffee a couple of times and our schedules never really like linked up well. But I was like, thank you, Uber. And then this morning... (laughs) I was in the car with a guy and I was in a bad mood this morning. I had little sleep. Yesterday was a very rough day and I got in the car and I'm a firm believer that people cross our paths for a reason, right? And I get in the car and I'm a little grouchy and this guy's got great music on, very mellow jazz. And he just had this presence about him that was so calm and centered. I could feel myself getting calm. He's asking me about what I do, what I'm up to today. I told him I'm going to be in studio. I told him about Brown Girls Rising. And then he tells me his story, uh, young African-American man. I say young. We're the same age. He's 30. And he's telling me the story about how his dad passed away young and his mom was a drug addict and she gave him up for adoption. And he lived in the foster care system and he went to jail and got out of jail. He found he found God, has dedicated his life around. He's a full-time student now on a full academic scholarship. Wow found an amazing girl that he's in love with and they're engaged that he wants to marry. He's a youth minister and he wants to become a pastor. And he's telling me this story of redemption. And he said, you know, I use this a lot. I use this hashtag dirty to worthy, right? Because I think of my own story. I think of worthy women, um, how you show up in the world and owning your experiences. And in Brown Girls Rising, right? What is the shame that we have that we are overcoming? And, And this stuck to me. He said, He said, who is not worthy of a redemption story? Hmm. Everyone is worthy. He said, you can always turn your life around. He said, whether that's because you let God in or you choose to see the light. He said, and it is your job once you have been enlightened to share that light for other people who need that inspiration. I was sitting there in the car like, oh, Hmm. we were meant to share this (laughs) ride together. And there was like four accidents in a row. I thought I was going to be late. And every time there was another accident, we're just sitting there in traffic. He's telling me more of this story. And I was like... Oh, you were put in my path. <laughs> I was so moved. And we followed each other on Instagram. Now wow. we're friends. And so we- you produced this movie? <laughs> Sorry. Back to Uber. Back to Uber. My point. I love Uber. Tell us more about this. Um, right. So the, the film is called Nine Rides. It premiered last year at South by Southwest. We've been doing the festival circuit for about a year. The filmmaker, the director is Matthew Cherry. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Matt. Great guy. Um, He played in the NFL for several years before moving out here and jumping into filmmaking. And this is his second feature. The entire film was shot on an iPhone. So it was shot pretty quick. And and yeah, it's doing well. 
That's amazing. Crazy. That's when like people who say, well, I don't have the equipment. Well, I don't have this and I don't have that. I'm like, people have shot entire films on their iPhones. An iPhone is more advanced than any of the cameras that people used back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like you can do it. You can do anything. Definitely. That's yeah. really cool, though. That is incredible. And you're doing other amazing things. So even with your practice and as a professor, I read that you are also even helping young attorneys create their own practices after graduating, which I and I could be wrong about this, but I always think of attorney. You graduate, you get accepted to a firm, you go work until you burn out. Hopefully one day you make some big partner. I feel like it's a like, couple of divorces for every movie where they like they graduate and then have they're a heart like, attack. They're like, oh, I'm just getting everybody coffee. I'm working so hard. I work 80 hours. I'm burning out. I don't know what to do. And then like they have some enlightening moment <laughs> and they change their lives. And you're literally fielding the next generation of attorneys with their own practices that are changing the world. Well, thank you. That's complimentary. Yeah. You know, when I was in law school, I actually never even crossed my mind to have my own practice. This was something I did later on after practicing for several years, but I am the daughter of an entrepreneur. So I did grow up my whole life kind of being taught the importance of self-sustainability and owning your own. So yeah, it's just a practical skill that a lot of law schools still don't teach. So I'm teaching a class at UCLA at the law school this spring on it. And then this summer, I'm teaching the same class at Southwestern Law School. And it's really just going to be providing students with all the tools necessary to start their own practice should they decide to do that after they graduate. Unfortunately, law school doesn't really teach you a lot of practical stuff that you need. After you graduate, a lot of the classes that we are required to take, we never use. So this is just really a practical course that I created and pitched to both schools about you know, teaching students how to start their own practices and, and thrive. So how has that been for you getting into academia and working in these really kind of like male, I mean, male dominated and very white spaces? I'm used to it. So it's not that much different than what I'm used to. I yeah. mean, the college I went to was predominantly white. I went to school in upstate New York. Um, it was a predominantly white undergrad. I went to predominantly white law school. So it's not a space that I'm unaccustomed to. And you know, I actually haven't had any negative experiences. I definitely wish there were a lot more people of color in these spaces, but that's why I'm glad I'm there to help change the landscape because if people like me don't get into this field, it'll always be predominantly male and predominantly white. But yeah, I mean, most of the faculty meetings I go to or most of the trainings I go to, I am the only black woman there or it'll be me and maybe one other person. But yeah, you know, I always encourage people to to get into these fields to help change them. Right. So that's the only way it's really going to change. But I haven't had any negative experiences in academia. I've never had, you know, I've never been called out of my name or had any ne- negative experience from any of the faculty or the staff. So it's been all positive so far. That's really great. Yeah. That is really fortunate. Yeah. You know, we talk about changing the future of what that demographic looks like. What does your student population demographic look like now? How is it changing and evolving? One of the things that we're seeing with Brown Girls Rising is so many young people who are living here under Trump Nation, under this current environment, saying, I want to take action. I want to, one of our guests today, uh, our first guest of the morning, 17-year-old girl, contributor to MTV, built an incredible, you know, platform through Twitter, sharing her opinions on the election. Organized a walkout at her school. At her high school. And she used to want to be a teacher. And she's like, now, thanks to my platform and how it's changed, I want to be an attorney. I want to help people. I want to understand the judicial system. I want to change it for people and be involved. 
Uh, with your demographic, how are you seeing changes in your student population, the groups that you're working with, and how has it changed your experience as a leader? Does it make you more conscious about things that you're spending your time with and promoting socially, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Uh, most of my students don't look like me. Most of my students are white. Um, and I have a lot of international students. So yeah, I mean, most of them look nothing like me. And that demographic has pretty much changed, stayed the same over the past couple of years I've been teaching. So I'm hoping to help change that. I don't know. Male versus female? High ratio? It's about equal. Oh, that's Honestly, good. it's about equal. Yeah. I think um, I saw this publication the other day from UCLA. I think they sent it in their newsletter that they were 17% like ethnic minorities. Total? Is that high or low? It's high. Oh, forgive my <laughs> ignorance. I actually can't tell. I'm like, we're in LA. We're in a minority. I'm like, is it high or low? And I was like, really? Y'all are bragging about that? <laughs> oh, high for them. It's high for all, like, kind of top tier universities. Oh, I did not so know it's, that. So it's low. Yes. The, the, the Latino and black populations, they're very close knit at UCLA, at least, I remember. But yeah, they're very small. And I don't know if that if law is necessarily like a very highly sought after major for people of color at this point. I I mean, from the numbers that I know, I don't know numbers like the statistics off the top of my head, but I know the numbers are rising in terms of minorities, you know, getting a law degree. I don't know statistically what those numbers are, though. Yeah. So let's talk about as a sports and entertainment attorney. When you're dealing with sports, is that necessarily more of a people of color demographic in what you're working with or what types of sports? Um, Are you particular to one field versus another or one particular sport? Sure. So I lean more towards football. And um, I mean, the bulk of my practice is entertainment, though. So it's like 80 percent entertainment, probably 20 percent sports. And a lot of the people who are on the field or on the court or on television are a lot of times people who do look like me, you know, who are, are black and brown people. But a lot of times their representation does not look like them. I was just going to yeah. say, like, there's got to be a big discrepancy huge, with that. Huge, right? huge, huge. Um, so, yeah, most athletes, I mean, most NBA players, most NFL players are black. But their agents are white. Their managers are white. Their publicists are white. Their lawyers are white. Um, so a lot of the people I have to interact with to close these deals usually are white, whereas their clients a lot of times are black. So there's still a huge discrepancy with regards to the people actually making these deals and closing these deals. How does their like representation affect the types of deals that they get? Like we see, especially for actors, we see African-Americans, we see Latinos in a lot of like really kind of stereotypically typecasted roles. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think that that would be different if they had representation that were uh, people who look like them who are kind of conscious of how like wrong that is. I definitely think so. And I mean, at the end of the day, the talent, they have the final word. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I can't put all of the onus on right. their reps because the talent does have the right to say yes or no at the and end of the, the day. And it's the industry overall Right, also. you know, and for some people, you know, they're just, they're, there aren't as many opportunities for black and brown people. So whatever opportunity comes their way, a lot of times they're willing to take it. But yes, I mean, I definitely agree. I definitely think if there were more 
representation that looks like them, they would understand like the nuances um, of certain roles or, you know, when they get scripts, you know, black people, we can look at a script and tell it's trash, you know, (laughs) in a different kind of way than somebody else can, you know, like I'm going to look at a script differently through my eyes, knowing that, you know, this is racist. This is very stereotypical in a way that a white person's not going to be able to like pick that up. Like this Pepsi commercial that everyone is talking about right now. Ooh. Like, Tell us about the Pepsi commercial. When this <laughs> when this comes out, it's gonna be it's gonna. I don't know if it ha- would have died down because it's it's a uh, it's heated. It's heated. <laughs> it's not great. It's um, a mess. Pepsi has depicted. I'm sure everyone listening is gonna know about it by then. But Pepsi depicted Kendall Jenner running into a protest. How did I not realize that was Kendall Jenner? Uh, like, she was wearing like, a wig at first, hair and then her hair was Kendall different. Jenner. Yes. Oh. Yeah, another blunder on their part. So um, <laughs> just like layers of just not, it's just not From great. start to finish. Yeah, so she it's runs into a, a protest and uh, like there's a Muslim girl slapping, snapping pictures and she looks really happy. All of the black people are very light skinned. All It's mostly white people in the crowd like protesting. And I'm like, not accurate. Let's just say that. And so <laughs> she grabs a Pepsi and she runs across the aisle to where the cops are standing. You know, they're just standing there very respectfully, like minding their own business. Like, I'm just doing my job. And so she hands the guy a Pepsi and he opens it and drinks it. And she runs back over. And when she runs back over, the crowd erupts into cheers and, and laughter. And it looks like they're all having a really great time. And that's the whole commercial. Completely missing the original point of the societal inequalities and the oppression of people of color. And and that that fight is predominantly like of brown people. And then yeah. just like the casting of it is. And like I don't think people should be like really ripping Kendall Jenner for that because I don't feel like. That was just a poor choice. Yeah, it was stupid on her part. Um, they obviously don't understand the plight of the normal everyday brown person in America, which is why she was like, oh, this looks like a great opportunity. It's a nationally run commercial, which they have already pulled. It's been like less than 24 hours. And um, yeah, she I don't think it's her fault. I think it was a poor choice for her, but Pepsi and whatever executives were sitting around together. Agency that came up with that. Talking to each other, being like, yes, yes. Photographer, Muslim girl, smiling. Yes. White people. Yes. Black people in the background cheering for this cop. Yes. Like, what? (laughs) Because that ever happens. Somebody had a hand in every single element of that. And I just want to know who that person is so Mm -hmm. I can just be like, you took took the L of 2017. (laughs) Just take your L and go. (laughs) Okay, but let's, uh, yes, and that is horrible. But I think what that leads us to is, you know, kind of the focus on this podcast of where we've experienced societal inequalities and where we've really been aware of those things for people of color, for and for women, just in general, not just people of color, but like double whammy, you're a woman and you're a woman of color, right? Yeah. How about you, Jaya? Have you ever had experiences of just otherness in general that made you hyper aware of like just like oh. compounded otherness every day? She's <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like hand up, hand up, <laughs> all day, every day. You, pretty much, pretty much. Um, yeah, I mean, as a black woman, it's something you experience. I, ex- I mean, I experience it no. probably on a weekly basis. So, how has it been probably. going for you, and like particularly in Trump America? I had 
the first three, four weeks, I was seriously like inconsolable. Like I cried like every single day. I cried every single day. I was glued to Facebook. I couldn't look away from it. I wrote something really depressing on my phone and I read it the other day and I was like, damn, (laughs) it was, it got me hard. It was like a breakup. I was like, Brock, (laughs) why'd you leave me? (laughs) Why'd you leave me? (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the things was that, he, rough. that Yvette said that really has stayed with me was the day after the election. And to put this in context, we had just had our first National Worthy Women Conference in November, and the election was two days after. So we had come off this super high of feeling like, women empowerment, the future is female, we have done this, we're there, we're crossing a finish line. Hashtag winning. I was like, everything is great and amazing. We're making history. I selfied. At the polls, being yes. like, this is going to be the day. Yes. And it was not the day. And she came into the office, and the next day we're sitting there, and she's in tears, and she looks at me, and she said, I had no idea people hated us so much. Yeah. And to be, and and to that point, we've been talking about this with other guests, The and in fact, a guest that we spoke to earlier today who said, uh, the blatantness of people's racism now. It's like, it's now okay to be a racist. Like, somehow... Trump won. You can now be a racist. I'm just speaking my mind, saying my opinions. like From people you wouldn't expect or had no idea. And it's become very polarizing and almost like, are we us? Are we them? Vice versa. And I found... Oh, wait. No. You can go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll jump in. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The Trump election was a travesty, to say the least. And interestingly, I actually worked on the Obama campaign. Oh, we want to hear about that. Um, As I mentioned, I'm originally from Ohio. So when he ran, I went back to Ohio for a while and worked because I don't want to say we're the most important state, but... We are. You are. And so (laughs) I went back to Ohio and worked on his campaign for a while. Um, And it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, And I worked the polls on Election Day. And just seeing all of, interacting with all of the black people who came into the polls telling me this was their first time ever voting. And it was because Brock was running. I mean, I was meeting people in their 80s, 90s, 70s. This was their first time ever voting in life. I have chills. And they said, you know, I came out just to vote for Brock. And so, I mean, it was just an amazing, there were so so many amazing stories, but it was really just an amazing experience and really an amazing experience having him in office for eight years. So, hell yeah. I mean, honestly, I, Hillary's cool. I voted for her. But she's no Barack Obama. So, yeah. you know. Condoleezza Rice. I keep saying it. I kind of love Condoleezza Rice. And I sit she's here. She's brilliant. But, like, she <sighs> says some things sometimes. And I'm like, Condi, girl. Oh, no. I love her. I love her. I Baby, think she's brilliant. what is you doing? <laughs> Listen, we'd love to get you on this show. I love her. I love her, too. I have a severe obsession with her. I just think she's brilliant. She is brilliant. She is brilliant. She's amazing. I took women. I did a women's history class, and my report was on Condoleezza Rice. And she's like a concert pianist, and she speaks fluent Russian. I was like, she's amazing. Yeah. But her politics and the things she says sometimes, I'm just like, ugh. Yvette and I clearly have very different political opinions. Yeah, we're very different. We're opposite in every sense of the word. Yeah, I'm like heavy, like socialist. (laughs) And she, I I said the internet should be free to everyone the other day, and she was like, "What? 
you are obviously not a capitalist. I'm like, no, it's the devil. She was like, we can't talk about this. <laughs> New topic. New topic. New topic. Like, anyways. <laughs> but, but that point, right, I want to come back to this. And I want to expand more on you working on an election because, as I said earlier, we are seeing such an outpour of people who are taking political action and getting involved in ways that we've never seen. And if that's the one positive thing that's come out of this, to see people no longer being comfortable and stepping out and saying, no, we're not guaranteed anything. What are we going to change? And how am I going to be involved in my own change, I think is incredibly powerful. And so for you to like pick up and go back to Ohio, I mean, that has to be disruptive to your life. Definitely. Is that even paid? No, those are volunteer things, right? Mostly. A little money. Like a little money. Right, right, right. But yeah, it was definitely disruptive, but it was definitely worth it. And I do it all over again. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity that I would repeat in in a heartbeat. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the Trump election was, was something completely different, a completely different experience. Um, and on election night, I was actually going into it pretty calm, thinking Hillary had it in the bag, we um, all did. as I think most people <laughs> did. And so I was pretty, you know, I think I got home that day and I was kind of laying low, pretty mellow, you know. And as numbers started coming in, though, you know, and the demographics started changing, my friends and I, we started kind of like texting each other, like, did you see what just, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it, we just kept getting more nervous and nervous as the hours passed by. And honestly, I was— was the death blow. It was. Um, and I was honestly, I was shocked. I, I really didn't see him winning. Um, I didn't cry. I, I, was, I was surprised. I was shocked. But I, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily— sad per se. You know, if you looked at the numbers, black women, we came out, we did our thing. 94% of black women yep. came out and voted for Hillary. Always I don't holding it down. know about the other groups, but you know, black women, we came out in droves and supported Hillary. And not even necessarily because we're huge Hillary supporters, we just understood the importance yeah. of yes. voting for Hillary over Donald Trump. So, you know, I really feel like black women, we did our part and not saying that we're done because we did our part, but I was... You know, I was troubled not just by the outcome of the election, but also the other women, you know, the percentage of white yeah. women, the percentage of Latina other races of women, women who, who voted for him. So that was troubling, too. I still um, can't figure out the Latinos for Trump. I am so disappointed in them. If you're listening, I'm very disappointed in you. Like, I <laughs> I couldn't, I, I just can't. And it's just because, it's because of the complexity of the Latino experience and then, like, race politics and all this other stuff that really goes into it that's like we're like a mixed bag of like you know dysfunction and awesomeness so <laughs> that election was just it threw me I couldn't even believe that I was like how dare you like ruin this for everyone else and then I keep seeing reports you know those articles is like I didn't think that he was going to deport my husband and he's Latino like well he did talk about it he all kind year. of told yeah. you so, he I told you, you there listening. is no surprise yeah. yeah he basically told you everything he was gonna do right. and you were like what this is crazy yeah. but yeah I mean if nothing else I mean to your point I, you know I definitely think it's made people a lot more aware of politics and the system I think people are a lot more engaged than they have been in recent years so you know there is a positive that's come out of this Ooh, even though I hate to even use that word in relation to Trump positive. Yeah. It is that people are a lot more engaged and a lot more educated um, yes. on what's going on, which is good because I think a lot of people were asleep, mm-hmm. you yes. know, so. For a long time. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of getting woke, getting woke, <laughs> being woke. 
You got you got to write the first time. <laughs> For once, I get it right. I always mess up, and Yvette's always like, "Oh, that's not it. That's yeah. not it." Microaggressions. <laughs> she always says everything is a microaggression. I'm like, that's not what it means. I just like her proper definition. I enjoy Yvette's reactions to it. She enjoys poking at me because I can't take sarcasm and getting a rise out of me. I jokes. I don't get jokes. I'm a very literal person. <laughs> One time we were going to, I love this story. One time we were going to Smart and Final and I was just messing with her and we had to go pick up a big thing of paper towels. And she was like, we have to call an Uber. I don't want people seeing me carrying these paper towels. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, because they're going to think it's for your butt. And she was like, why would anyone think that? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Never mind. Let's get that Uber. Let's go home. Tough crowd. <laughs> I take things very literal all the time. I can't help it. It's One time Kendra was like, Audrey, we should have a work day in Rancho because two of us live in Rancho and only one of us lives in Long Beach. So it would be convenient and fair if we all work together like at Yvette's house or something. And Andre was like, I have this office. I work day and night for this office. <laughs> and I work you to give you these things. I work for these things for you. And you and, do not appreciate them. And we were just laughing so hard. She's like, I don't know why you're laughing. I'm like, because it's humorous. <laughs> I totally missed that. I thought she was being serious. Yeah. I always do. I was like, watch her think you're serious. <laughs> I'm serious right now. Serious right now. And I'm going to ask a serious question. Jaya, do you consider yourself a feminist? And if so... How has that changed or not changed for you over the years, grown, expanded, morphed as you've become the woman that you are today? Sure. I definitely, I've never, I guess, put a label on myself as a feminist, but I definitely believe in the equality of, you know, I feel like women should be, receive equal treatment as men. And I know everyone kind of has a different definition of how they define feminism, but for all intents and purposes, yes, I would uh, consider myself a feminist. Over the years, I would say that definition has probably narrowed a little bit just because I think for me, not only am I a woman, but I'm a black woman. And I think my interests as a black woman are very nuanced in a way that, you know, my issues aren't the same issues as maybe a white woman who considers herself a feminist. You know right. what I mean? Mm -hmm. our, our issues are still very different to the point that a lot of times I may not still, even though we're both feminists, be able to relate to her problems, her to mine you know, vice versa. So I, I feel like my, the scope of my feminism has probably narrowed to that of, you know, those issues that, that really also affect other black women. Yeah. yeah. We, we experienced that here with Brown Girls Rising. I mean, when we started this, there was a lot of conversation around white girl feminism and black girl magic. And what happens when you're in between? What happens if you're Afro-Latina? In the U.S., yeah. you're just considered black. But you might consider yourself Latina. Like, we have friends who are Dominican. They're like, no, we're Latinas. And I'm like, not here. Mm -hmm. Here, yeah. you're just black. Mm -hmm. Right? That's Which is rough. It, that is rough. Because um, it, it's it's somebody else defining your own identity. Southeast and kind of taking Asian. it away from you. Right? Southeast Asian women, Filipina women, same yep. thing. Because they're like, well, we're not really Asian, but we almost speak can understand Spanish. It's like kind of this weird intersection, Guam, Indian women. Like, what does that mean when you're in the spectrum in between and blurred on all the ends, right? So right. here we said, all right, we're brown girls rising. We're covering women of color. And not as we define you, if you define yourself as a woman of color, we want to know you. And this conversation is for you. That's awesome. And specifically the rising part, right? Because we are, as we were saying, under this current uh, 
election outcome and the cycle leading up to it, everything is so negative and I'm so tired of the negativity. And I want to hear stories about positive uprisings, positive elevations of action through community, through music, through art, through organizing, like you, what you're doing in your life every day to help empower people through education, to teach them with your clients, being an ad, you are literally an advocate for people who cannot for themselves through complex experiences and legal things. Well, thank you. And which are really and legal things. <laughs> and legal things which will bind you and hold you over. That's, they got that's you. intersectionality, Audrey. You got it. (laughs) You got it. I'm so proud. That was sarcasm for people who are. No, I'm being serious. You got it. I'm proud. (laughs) And you said it all by yourself in your own words. (laughs) For the layman here. Yeah. No, but I have a. I I completely agree with you and like identify with that in that my feminism has narrowed significantly in that you kind of realize you are entitled to your own version and viewpoint within the feminist umbrella. And like, I had a really, uh, after the, well, I told you I was like having a complete breakdown <laughs> after the election. And every day I'm like, Yvette, no more Facebook. I banned Facebook in the office. Yeah. And like, I was having a conversation. I was, it was when they were saying, it was this the, the madness of him signing all those executive orders. And one of I read something online that said he was going to deport people who came here illegally, even if they were pre- even if they were permanent residents and even if they had become citizens, if they had come illegally and their children. And I remember like panicking and like calling my mom and I was like, did my dad come here legally? Like, mm. I don't know. I know he's a, he was in the military. So he, that's how he got his citizenship. But like, mm. I don't like that's not something my dad talks about. Right. And so I was like freaking out and like. This girl, I wouldn't even call her my friend, but uh, an acquaintance, I was just like kind of like crying and she was like, well, you know, I I understand. And I'm like, no, like this is what's happening with me. Like, and I have an undocumented member of my family and I was like, I don't know what's going to happen to her. And I was like really scared. And she was like, well, you know, I'm feeling it too. And I was like, oh yeah. And she was like, (laughs) I was like, oh yeah. (laughs) And she was like, well, I might lose Obamacare. And I was like, not really the same thing. Not the same thing. Yeah, not losing Obamacare. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, and I was like, the fact that you can equate losing your health insurance with me losing a member of my family and/or my own citizenship shows me how like tone deaf and really closed minded your version of feminism and your like white experiences and how it completely excludes me and the people like me. Right. And, like, that is something that I feel like we're all coming to terms with now. Right. And that's why I while out on our social media. (laughs) And I mean, that's such a good point because, I mean, I can't, as a black person, I can't understand that either. You know, I can't, I I wouldn't proclaim to understand what it's like to possibly have a family member deported, you know. So that's a unique experience to you. Um, for me, I can worry about, you know, my dad getting shot by a police officer, my cousins getting shot by a police officer, my male friends get, you know what I mean? So they're all very unique experiences that, you know, a white woman's not going to understand that Mm -mm. the way I'm going to understand it, you know, and experience it and live it every single day. So, I mean, yeah, to, to definitely echo your point, that's so true. And the other day I saw 
we were talking about with Gloria Lucas about like the cultural transmission of trauma and how mm. that's kind of passed through your family. They, I think it was NPR, always NPR. It was like some obscure statistics about Mexicans being lynched over here. Yeah, that happened. And My they had face. pictures. They had pictures. And like, I like we see, you know, black people hanging from trees in our history books. And like it never really clicks with me because I can look at that and be like, that's not me. Right. That was the first time I looked at that. And I was like, that is me. Right. And I that really like messed me up, dude. Yeah. Like, I, I can't even like it's too much. Yeah. Um, there's a really, really good book. Sorry, I'm getting off topic for a no, second. No, you're on topic. In <laughs> fact, one of our questions that we have for you are what are your some of your recommended reads? Yeah, I mean, to that point, there there's a really, really good book I read a couple of months ago called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, mm. kind of talking about the mental effects of slavery uh, hundreds of years later on us currently. And not just from a Black perspective, but, you know, from other cultures as well. Really, really great book, Post-Traumatic Tra- Slave Syndrome. Probably one of the best books that I've read recently, uh, The New Jim Crow. Mm. Yes. Um, you know, we I, had another I guest mention that as well. Yeah. Really? Um, I'm, I'm going to pick it up. It's a great, great book. Author Michelle Alexander, professor from Ohio, uh, was teaching at Ohio State. Um, and she really just kind of breaks everything down. And so, so much, especially in the Trump era, it's a really important book to read because she talks a lot about the effects of the Bush administration and incarceration and, you know, the number of arrests during that period. And it's a really important read just because we may, you know, end up having a repeat of that, if not worse, in the Trump era. So another really great book I, I would probably recommend. Any other great books and other inspirational pieces of literature, women that have brought you to be the woman that you are today? Anything by Angela Davis. Um, We're yeah. obsessed with yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I just love too. watching that video of her. Like, she was in jail and she was going on trial. And she comes out and you think, like, oh, like, they're trying to accuse her of being too black and too, you know, Black Panther-y, I guess. Right. <laughs> like, I don't really know what Black that charge Panther-ish. was. Yeah. Right. Black Panther-esque. And she comes out and she has her fro and she's just like, you know what? Mm-mm. Right. <laughs> and she sits there and she's just like, okay. Not today, Satan. <laughs> Not today, Satan. <laughs> yeah, really anything by her. And she recently had a book that came out, I want to say last year. But she does, has a lot of literature on, like, women, race, politics. There's She has a whole slew of books that I, I would recommend any of them. Oh, and you know what? This weekend at, in Chinatown, they are having an art exhibition. The guy who did all of the Black Panther imagery and oh. posters and flyers, like he's going to exhibit his art. Oh, okay. Interesting. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm going. I'm, you should. I'm, yeah, it's I opening night. That. It's on Saturday. Okay. It's a really, there's a lot of galleries in Chinatown I did not know about. I didn't either. And I live close by. I live downtown. I haven't. Yeah. It's on King Chung Road. And okay. it's like this little street that kind of goes up. I think it's kind of off of Alpine in Broadway. Hmm. And it's really interesting. That's where I saw the adornment show. It's the one across the street from it. Uh, For our listeners, Yvette, tell them what the adornment show was. Uh, The adornment show was a a photography. I'm like photography. (laughs) 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 It was a photography. It was a photography series of brown girls. And with, like, their hair completely braided up and, like, jewelry kind of placed within their hair, like, earrings and, like, door knockers. And it's just, like, 
kind of a lot of uh, Yoruba Santeria imagery. And um, it was really beautiful, like really powerful and really beautiful. I've been seeing a lot of like really awesome brown girl art related things coming out as a result of the Trump era. And I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That was one of the big positives that we saw immediately after and from when we first started this podcast was how many uh, how women are expressing their feminism, particularly through their art and being so aware of it because we get tagged in it. In fact, that's how we found out about the adornment show. They tagged us on Instagram or commented on one of our Instagram posts. And we're like, this looks cool. Can you tell (laughs) us more? Oh, no, they DM'd me and they were like, we're doing this show. Can you shout it out? And I looked over like just, you know, what the basic ones like flyers they had were. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this looks amazing. And then when I went, I was like, this is like so beautiful. And the braiding is so on point and so like. Intricate. I've n- yeah, I've never seen braiding like that before. Oh, wow. She gets down. I want her to do our hair for our nylon shoot. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I need in my life. Yeah, you got the baby hairs for it. <laughs> you can't see them under this hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, Chaya, how about for you? How have you found expressing your feminism or has the way you've expressed your feminism changed as your platform has grown and even now? And is it something that you express, like, the way you teach? Like, is there a a feminist, like, element in your law practice at all? Probably not. Yeah. I'm trying to think. She's like, I just show up this way. I woke up like this, therefore all things I do are feminist. More or less. Um... Everything you touch turns to feminism. (laughs) And gold. (laughs) Minus. I mean, unfortunately, with the law, there's not much room for expression. I mean, you know, this is the law. This isn't the law. You know what I mean? So So, I'm going to actually argue that that is a form of feminism and that's a form of action because there is is. so much misinformation out there just like about the law. The hysterics that Yvette caved into right after the election where I sit there and she's like, is this (laughs) even possible? Right. The questions of are these things even possible and the fact that you can actually tell people what is and isn't possible because you are a student of the law. That's true. You know, for my course, the primary courses I teach are IP-related classes, copyrights, trademarks. So with that, a lot of times it's it's a little more black and white where I don't get to, I guess, express myself. We talk a lot about (laughs) trademarks and copyrights (laughs) because a lot of the women that we've interviewed are artists who are getting their work ripped off. Yeah. Yeah. Literally everyone we've talked to. Everyone we've talked to and what's covered, what isn't covered, and about having your work ripped off by bigger brands who don't attribute you and who have big legal teams that no matter how much you throw at them or get social backing, they just shut you down because they have the money, the time, and all the last names on their rosters when it comes to that letterhead to be able to do so. Right. Right. And that's definitely one thing I do try to do, I mean, is educate women as much as possible about how to protect your work. So uh, there is a ton of misinformation even about that area about, you know, how do I protect my work? How do I copyright it? You know, what, do I, can I just mail it to myself? You know, there's a lot mm. of misinformation out there. So whenever I do get the chance, and I do speak to a lot of, you know, women organizations and groups about the proper steps to protect your work, you know, in that space. I love that. Maybe we can get you for a Worthy Women workshop since we have you for our May Los Angeles (laughs) City Summit. We're coming back to L.A., people, after a few months on the road. I know. (laughs) I mean, we're here right now, but I miss it. 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's going to be great. We cannot wait. Jaya, it's been incredible having you. Where can people find you and find more about how to get in contact with you? Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at my name, Jaya, J-A-I-A, last name Thomas. Same for Instagram, Jaya Thomas. And you can also check out my website, www.jathomaslaw.com. Fabulous. So if you need your copyright, you need your trademark, you're in entertainment, you're coming up on the sports side. You, you want to make your a, own legal practice. You want to make a dope movie on your iPhone. Pretty much anything, guys. Contact me. <laughs> Pretty much if you're dope and you want to be represented by a fellow dope-worthy woman, hashtag women of worth, we've got you covered. I can be found at Audrey Bellis. And you can find me at Yvette, actually. This has been Brown Girls Rising. Bye. This episode of Brown Girls Rising was brought to you by Nylon Español and recorded at Maker City LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time. 